Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and uh, my two co-hosts are here with me as always, Sue Grimmett and Peter Cat. Morning, guys. Good morning. Yes, good day. Wonderful day. Yes, well, it is a wonderful day because of the guest we have jumping into the uh, podcast with us today. Dr. Barbara A. Holmes is a spiritual teacher, activist, and scholar focused on African-American spirituality, mysticism, cosmology, and culture. She's the author of a number of books, Race and the Cosmos, An Invitation to View the World Differently, Joy Unspeakable, Contemplative Practices of the Black Church, and most recently, Crisis Contemplation, Healing the Wounded Village. Barbara, thank you so much for jumping into this chat from Florida and, uh, and spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. Look, we are so excited by this conversation, by this and conversation. I suppose um, I suppose there's a little bit of context. We're hoping to broaden our understanding of what it is to be a contemplative and what contemplation is, um, which is what mm. you've done throughout your work and, and particularly your, your two most recent books. Um, I'm just wondering if maybe as a starting point, you could tell us a little bit about your contemplative journey um, to begin with, how you found mm. yourself in the contemplative tradition and, and, um, and what that journey's looked like. My journey um, began with a lot of mysticism. Um, my aunties were all part of the Gullah culture in South Carolina. And um, they had a view of the world that didn't begin with your birth date and your death date. It was a continuum. And so although people would pass away, they would send messages back. There would be all kinds of wisdom coming forth, warnings. And so I always viewed the world as a cycle, not just beginning and endings. Also, my family required that I could play and get as dirty as I wanted to during the day. But in the afternoons, we had to shower, sit on the porch, read, and contemplate, whatever that meant to an eight-year-old. <laughs> so <laughs> mostly we would stare longingly at our companions who were still out there playing and getting dirty. <laughs> but little by little, I began to um, live into an inner stillness that abides with me even now, um, that I carry with me always, that began with that big family, a childhood of mystics, and a childhood full of wonderful silences. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it, it's interesting uh, because something that, that your work uh, on contemplation has uh, radically transformed for me and, and for many others is, I suppose, a, a broadening of the idea itself, the term itself. I know um, when we, we use the word contemplative, many people probably think of something uh, quite white, quite European. It's the kind of individual mm -hmm. sitting in silence, maybe on a hilltop, maybe in a monastery having a private kind of um, experience of God in, in that contemplative way, um, you have entirely opened that that concept up. And I know when you, you write about this, you say there was a key moment for you at Mississippi Boulevard Church where you got a, a different sense of what it could be to, to be a contemplative. Could you share that story with us? Absolutely. I, I was writing the book, Joy Unspeakable, Contemplative Practices of the Black Church, and I was um, daring to say that African-Americans had contemplative practices. And people kept telling me, no, they didn't. 
because their worship was evocative. They were always joyful and shouting and dancing around. And where would I find these contemplative practices? And I had no answer, but I knew in my heart they existed because I had lived into them. And I was sitting in a pew with my mom and all of a sudden they started singing a song called, Oh Jesus. Well, Oh Jesus only has two words to the song. Oh, Jesus. And it isn't really a song. It's a, it's a moan. It's a plaintive cry. And as the organ began to play, people throughout a congregation of about 5,000 in Memphis, Tennessee, a mini mega church, began to moan and cry out and mutter. And I could just see folks entering into this contemplative space together, communally, mm. as a church, as a congregation, not as a single monastic. And I heard it and I saw it and I started writing at the back of the program and thinking to myself, will I be able to capture this? Um, and I was, because I found William Johnston's work that talked about the spirit in the upper room falling on the group. Not a single person, but all the disciples and the tongues flaming and the speech thereafter. And so I, I began to open up my own concept of what it meant to be a contemplative. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. So do you have a, I guess, a working a definition? I know you explore a few throughout Joy Unspeakable particularly, but if someone says to you, so how do you define contemplation now? How do you define being a contemplative? How, how do you respond to that? I'm never quite capable of giving a clear answer. <laughs> um, it means to turn inward, mm. to connect to other living beings through the spaces of silence, to take on a humility of spirit that aligns you with the universe. But those definitions change depending yeah. on who's asking, <laughs> what's needed at the moment, and how I'm particularly feeling. <laughs> Well, I know that's not very satisfying, but that's the best I can do. Well, no, but it is it is a beautiful idea, and and I think um I think what I have realized through your work is how uh, I suppose narrow my view of of being a contemplative or of the contemplative tradition has been, um because generally I I think and and I don't want to speak on behalf of anybody else, but I do think this is a pervasive idea that if someone asked me what it is to be a contemplative, I would just describe you know the twenty minute contemplative sit that you might do in the morning or the evening and that's the be all and end all as if there is one door into this this um this way of being whereas the way you talk about an afrocentric contemplative um, background rather than a eurocentric one as something that is communal is such a totally different um expression and, and i know that you you do you spoke there about i guess that that communal mm -hmm. sense that you noticed in the church You've also written about the the moan that was heard on the, the slave ships coming over mm -hmm. to America and, mm -hmm. and the origins there. Could you share a little bit about that? Yes. Um, that's where I first recognized the concept of crisis contemplation, two words that don't seem to go together at all. Um, as I 
are thought about slaves from or Africans from different tribes, different languages, different cultures, all being tight packed into ships being brought to the West. I realized that the only kind of language they had, and there is a scholar, his name is James Noel, um, the late James Noel, who talked about the moan as a language that became the primary language of those who shared nothing, um, except that they came from the continent of Africa. It would have been like filling slave ships with Italians and Spanish and, and, and Polish. They wouldn't be able to speak to each other or understand anything. And so they create out of their misery and their suffering a language, the moan, that allows them to articulate, knit themselves together. And so the, that by the time they arrive on Western shores, they are a community stitched together by suffering and common experience and the moan. The other thing is that um, in African and Afro-diasporan um, context, the silences of contemplation can be in evocative practices like drumming. Between each drumbeat, there is a silence, a pause. Mm -hmm. Between each breath, there is pause. You don't just breathe continually, there's a pause. You can dance a contemplative moment. It need not be still, silent, and um, Oh, mm. it can be a village dancing and you will break open a space mm. that is contemplative. That's mm. where your, your lovely definition of connecting with other living beings comes yes. into play and the spaces of silence. So there's spaces of silence in, in, in drumming, spaces of silence in dance. Um, and there's certainly connection in all of those moments. Mm. You know, we Actually, um, I used to be part of leading a, a school program that actually taught uh, through the drumbeat program. There's a uh, there's a program in Australia anyway called Drumbeat, which is teaching djembe drumming for that sense that for many kids, they can't enter a prayerful space or even just a quiet meditative space without doing, being active, without moving. And it was actually in that space of drumming that um, some kids who really didn't get on with one another used to actually start to connect without words. And so there was something going on in those silences. And, and it's a lovely, I hadn't thought about it as being the space between the drum beats, but I suspect that was that could be a great way to, to look into it, that it was the space between the drum beats that allowed that deep connection to happen for those groups of teenagers. Hmm. God is only our own hubris that tells us that we don't need anyone and that we are strong and um, capable of doing everything by ourselves. Even our heart beat leaves a space between each beat, mm. a contemplative space for life and contemplation and connection. That's a really nice image. Yeah, and you, you're, you're really touching on something that um, the Western tradition uh, should hold uh, well in terms of its own meditative practice. Uh, John, John Main, the Benedictine who reinvigorated uh, meditation in the, in the Western churches in the last century, he, he actually said that um, meditation was meant to happen as a group. And he described mm -hmm. that when you meditate as a group, the Holy Spirit 
zips around the circle from person to person and getting faster and faster and faster. So you end up with this vortex that actually um, draws everyone into the centre. And so that it, he, he described um, meditating as... Uh, he, he advocated for meditating as an individual if you couldn't get to be part of a group, but to always imagine that you were part of a group. It's a bit like one of the images we hold of the church saying morning and evening prayer, that it's actually a corporate... Even if you're sitting by yourself somewhere, you're actually yes. part of a whole... And the wave of prayer just moves around the church, you know, that... Um, wonderful hymn that we sometimes sing about the, the day you gave us, Lord, has ended. And the, as we're going to sleep, someone else is waking up and saying the prayer of the mm. church. And, and then we're actually not just praying for ourselves. We're actually praying as the church for the church and for the world. And it's, it's like we're wrapping the whole world up in, uh, in prayer and it's that the whole world is being brought into this vortex of uh, prayerfulness and contemplation. And, you know, I think, I think we can contemplate uh, on behalf of others, that, that there's some sort of like a worldwide web of uh, beautiful silence and depth, and it really blows apart that idea that we just meditate to become mindful so that we can be better at our job and more more <laughs> resilient. One of my hate words. Uh, if you want a 15-minute diatribe, I'll start on resilience. Uh, <laughs> I won't go down that track now, but uh, I think resilience is the enemy of the people. But uh, I, I think I think what you're describing is 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 the truth of contemplation in any tradition. If it really should be corporate, um, and it's activist in a in a interesting way. Yeah, yes, I, I love the image of the wild bird stirring up a vortex. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like the fact, Peter, you threw in how we also made um, meditation into some sort of corporate achievement um, <laughs> and, you know, some good self-actualization self, um, or, you know, the, the personal development gurus have latched onto that and we've made it particularly... Um, you know, in, in the West, we've sort of turned it into an achievement register, which is actually the opposite of what it is, um, you know, and we don't even notice how we're defining it. It's going to be so subtle sometimes and slow. We're, we're sort of creeping. It's getting creeping cultural accretions along the way. And so we haven't noticed what we've excluded from the practice of contemplation and what gifts we're missing out on because of all of those exclusions, because of our cultural accretions. And, you know, our desperate need to achieve something all the time. You know? <laughs> yeah, letting go isn't easy in our context. I like the work of Bayo Akomalafe, a Nigerian philosopher who says the times are urgent. Let us slow down. <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that you, you talk about turning things into an achievement. I, I'm just remembering a meditation app that I downloaded once that would give you like a gold medal for each day you meditated. And if you could get 20 days in a row, then you'd get, you know, a, some platinum thing would come up on the screen. And <laughs> and it, it turned this thing into another form of, of achievement. And there, I'm, mm -hmm. I, I kid you not when I say this, there was a meditation leaderboard 
which would have the users who had meditated the most days consecutively, <laughs> which which probably shows part of the problem. And I, and I suppose this is where, in a sense, the contemplative tradition is almost at its core incompatible with the the Western myth of the individual. Um, you know, it, it is at its very heartbeat a communal thing, Barbara. So as you've delved into over the last decade or so in your work, um, the more Afrocentric uh, contemplative background, has has that been probably the main thing that you'd say has come out of it, the the way in which this is has to be a communal thing? Yes, the, uh, the way in which it has to be communal, but also the ways in which we heal from trauma and the ways in which we save our children. I don't know much about the education system in Australia, but here our urban schools are failing children um, who are what we call BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, um, uh, people of color. Uh, They're failing them. And um, introduction of contemplative pedagogies, teaching our children to allow spaces for silence and meditation are helping with the healing. So that's one thing. Um, How do we take this into the future? How do we teach another generation? Um, How do we heal the trauma of what these groups of folk have been through as communities. Mm. There's a lot of talk of PSTD, and that's fine. Um, What happens to individuals who are subjected to intense trauma during war or other kinds of events? But there are traumas that affect whole groups of people. Mm. And now, lately, because of the media, we're able all to be traumatized at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> we can all watch George Floyd die at the same time on television yeah. and be traumatized. And so the question then becomes, um, how does the village restore, reconcile, and repair the trauma? And and it's a question that you have written about before as being at the very heart of the, uh, I guess, of the African-American church in the U.S., going right back to the, the stories of the hush arbors on plantations. And, um, and, and that's such a moving thing. I, I'd not come across that before. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, the hush arbors were um, developed in slave plantations because they were preachers who were brought to the plantations to teach slaves to, quote, obey their masters. Well, um, you know, these Africans were not idiots. They knew there had to be more. <laughs> to this than that. And they had been introduced to prayer and worship and connection to the divine because they had their own cosmologies. They had their own religions. They had their own understanding of who God is and how God manifested in their lives. And so what they would do is go out into the brush where they couldn't be heard. And they would either pray into huge uh, cauldrons or they would dig a pit and they would cover their heads and they would moan and cry out and pray to the gods. Um, and they were called these hush arbors where prayer could be held in secret places to the God that they knew would deliver them. Bayo Komalafe says when the slave ships left, the slavers thought all they had was human cargo. And in fact, what they brought with them was Eshu Alegba, one of the uh, West African God figures who was a trickster, 
who would go with the Africans and teach them how to turn all of this on its head, to survive, to be resourceful. Mm -hmm. And so they were carrying Africans in bondage, but they were also carrying the God, the trickster, mm -hmm. the one who would teach them how to survive. Wow. That trickster, I love that trickster archetype is so subversive, you know, and it, that as a, um, it turns up in different places and saves people, really saves people. Mm. Yeah, that's... yeah. It's a deep tradition of um, Christ the fool, in, particularly in the Russian church, and, uh, mm -hmm. and part of that foolishness is the jester and the trickster and the one who uh, can walk into power, Talk to power, talk truth to power in a way that uh, other people can't, and and destabilize power by revealing the truth. It's sort of pointing to the emperor and saying the emperor has no clothes on, and uh, the veil is lifted. It's a, an amazing part of the tradition. Yeah, right. Mm. People forget that Africans were there in the beginning mm. in Jerusalem. Yeah, um, that an African carried a cross for Christ. That uh, right. you know. They're not being evangelized or missionized as, quote, slaves, unquote. Mm. They were there in the beginning, and they had very powerful um, worship and belief systems about God. So they believed that if their gods could be defeated um, by slavery, that the God who was carrying them over, protecting them, was a powerful God, one they needed to know, and one they needed to pray to. Mm. And it is interesting. But always, always enculturated, you know, always mm. attentive to their own culture. Yeah, yeah. And what, what is interesting as well in terms of looking at, um, the, I guess, the roots that, that contemplation has in the African tradition is, and I don't know how this said, sort of slipped my mind, but the, the desert fathers and mothers were actually African, um, which is something that I think everyone who probably speaks about the contemplative tradition has come across the, the desert fathers and mothers in some way or other, um, but probably doesn't see this, this clear lineage. So what have you learned about, uh, I guess, about them in that way that, that has deepened this understanding for you? Well, it's just astonishing to me that um, the church fathers and mothers aren't taught in the ways that clearly identify most of them as Africans, mm. Athanasius and uh, you know Augustine, all of those folk. Um, when I was in seminary, they would give us a sheet of paper, and uh, the all you could see was the Mediterranean, <laughs> and they would mark off where things happened. But there's no way to identify that the bottom of the page was North Africa. Mm -hmm. So you know we continued to pretend to ourselves that the only tradition that is viable and real is European. I think that the European tradition is necessary, important, and vital. But I think there are other traditions we can learn from that will enhance all of it for us. Yeah, and this ties into something that that you were saying um, in the lead up to this this conversation, Sue, about how somehow as a church we need to recognize that we've placed cultural boundaries on expressions of faith and and spirituality, mm -hmm. and um, that that we really kind of need to to challenge that and and be aware of it and challenge it. 
I think mm. being aware is is the first step, though. I think there's an awful lot of stuff that we're just not aware of, where, you know, that assumption, for instance, that, you know, contemplation needs to be all about silence is something that maybe you haven't even challenged yet, you mm. know, that we need to actually shake up and realise we've put boundaries that we don't even realise we have on things. So awareness before we can even, um, before we can even start to break open some things that might set us a bit more free. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's all about being free. Mm. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's the contemplative that. way. Yeah. I was listening to the um, to the State of the Union address last night and realized they're still using the language of lightness for good and right and mm. darkness for evil and mm. and it just makes no sense when the the avenue to our deep knowing is through the dark night of the soul mm. that. Um, you know, the sun is not better than the moon. It's an alternating force yeah. that, you know, mm. we give birth in the darkness of the womb. That the universe is mostly dark matter mm. and dark energy. And so, you know, our language, our habits all try to put us in silos mm. that keep us from benefiting from the rich legacies that each of us bring from our culture. Your use of the uh, map reminded me that the other, on the um, right-hand side of that map is Turkey, which is part of Asia, and other church fathers like the Cappadocians were right in the centre of Turkey and bringing in Asia, an Asiatic sort of insight into the church as well, and we've sort of homogenized it all into sort of a central European uh, and and their thought processes um, should continue to challenge us um, particularly ideas of Trinitarian thought and the like um, um, one of the Cappadocians Gregory of Nazianzus uh, was on to the idea that the Trinity broke down all our binaries in, the, in his, his writing in the fourth century and and we, we're still battling to overcome our binaries of light versus dark. And, and so here sure. we have you know, these other, other cultures that were trying to give us insights and we tamed them and then put them in a box. And, yeah. I've learned as much as I could possibly learn. I, I went to law school and practiced law and then got a PhD and just did any number of things I could do because I love learning so much. And now the process is of unlearning, <laughs> of using that for what it's worth, but putting it aside mm. and allowing myself to be taught um, in ways that I would have rejected as a younger woman. And so I'm willing to dance with Sufis and I'm, I'm mm. willing to listen to Native American drumming as an entry point into the very center of my heart. Mm. I want to know from people who have been ignored, whose stories have not been told, mm. whose prayers have not been heard on earth, perhaps in heaven, but not on earth. I want to learn from them. Mm. Yeah, and, and this ties into your latest work with, with crisis contemplation, which is, um, mm. as you said a little earlier, two words that we probably don't often throw together. I, I think when we think about, or it's certainly in 
the uh, the idea of contemplation I've had that you have helped me very radically challenge, Barbara. I have generally thought of maybe a a, a lovely hilltop, um, a quiet weekend, and things being peaceful and all being well in the world, not uh, contemplation in the midst of, of the worst times of life, of individual and collective crises. Um, how did you start to, I guess, uh, see the, the common thread between crisis and contemplation? I began by just taking a look at uh, groups of people I was studying. Um, after I did the book on the contemplative practices of the Black church, I began taking a look at the trauma of Native Americans and their removals from Native lands. I, I began to take a look at the Holocaust and the groups, this group suffering there. And I began to realize that entry into contemplation has many, many portals. It's not one door. And yes, you can go through as an individual, as a monastic, but you can also go through as a group, as a matter of rupture and breaking and crisis. When you are all going um, in Treblinka into the gas chambers, that is a moment of breaking experienced by more than one person. And usually um, what happens with crisis contemplation is that it's sudden. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't change it, but you don't experience it just as an individual. You're experiencing it as what I call a village. You are entering into this together. And it is a shifting of reality for you. It is crisis, it is wounding, it is traumatizing, and it puts you in a space where only divine help will help. Mm. There is no, nothing, nothing to change the circumstances except intervention from divine sources. Yeah, I think um, reading reading your work as you explore how certainly and you write from an American context, but even globally, we are in something of a, a collective dark night of the soul at the moment. Um, and you know, you throw in what's happened politically with the pandemic, with global conflicts now, with the climate. Um, you know, and you could probably list a bunch of other things as well. That, that it does feel like there's a, a, a collective dark night of the soul. And um, I think it might have been on our recent podcast with Sarah Augustine, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure of that, that we discussed the idea that in this dark night of the soul, the response of many people is the best life they can imagine is maybe a, a private happiness for them, that maybe I could go out and achieve in the midst of this this sinking ship I might be able to get myself a dry room on the top level and at least I will go down with everybody else, but at least I'll stay alive a bit longer and I'll get good food until I go down. And it's such a, a reduced vision of, of the world and it's, it is very much a, um, this whole thing's, you know, going to hell and it's just going to be, get what you can out of it before it does. How, how does the idea of crisis contemplation help us entirely reframe um, that approach to, to these times? Well, we're not going to, um, it's nothing's going to get better for one individual. Mm. It's about determining that we're going to have to dig our way out together. Mm -hmm. um, something that didn't happen very well in the United States during the pandemic, when masks got politicized and 
all of that, um, sort of like you're, you're saying, you have a room on the top, so you might sink later, but you're still going to sink. Mm -hmm. The point is, we are in this together. We have to admit that we're in this together. And that we have to reconstruct new realities. There is no going back to, quote, normal, unquote. That wasn't normal in the first place. It seemed normal because we were used to it, but it wasn't normal. And so to get anywhere in reality, it isn't a step-by-step -step process. I've always thought of it this way. It is the imaginative leap. What can you imagine for the collective that is good? What can we imagine as a, as a village, as a group, as a community that will heal us? that will bring us to a point of common, common good again. Once you can imagine it, you can leap toward it. If you're hmm. toiling with your eyes cast downward, you're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when the kids say, you know, are you woke? <laughs> the point is, are you, are you in a, some ambulant state? just daydreaming and moving ahead as you always have, you're gonna get what you always got. Or are you ready to leap at the sun? Mm. You may not be able to reach it, but at least you ought to leap. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I, and speaking of crisis contemplation and that that need to um, to go inward, to learn to, to let go, that beautiful quote you shared earlier about these being urgent times and the need to slow down and, and um, live in a different way. You, you write really beautifully about the, the three Marys at the foot of the cross of Jesus as an act of crisis contemplation, um, you know, exploring the idea that while pretty much everyone else ran away in the midst of this crisis, their presence was an act of, of contemplation. Um, I was just hoping maybe you could, you could explore that uh, idea a little bit. Yeah, I, I was reading um, Jewish literature and I ran across the, the statement that the prayer that Jesus prays from the cross is a children's bedtime prayer. And so um, when Jesus says from the cross, and I, I don't have the quote in front of me right now, when he speaks to Mary from the cross, He's saying Jewish words that were spoken every night when he woke up, you know, every, every night when he went to bed with the presumption with Mary, he would wake up in the morning. So when I was writing about that, I was saying, you know, Mary was the first to know that he would be resurrected hmm. because he's repeating this ancient Hebrew Psalm that is being used as a bedtime prayer. And every night he and Mary say it, they don't presume he's going to die. They presume he'll wake up in the morning and eat breakfast. And so when he's speaking to her from the cross, so what he's saying is, okay, now go with John because I'm getting up. It's going to be okay. Just like I did every night when you said this prayer with me. And so it's sort of a signal to her. And I have preached that. Um, it, it gives me such joy to preach that. It's just been like 15 years. So I can't give you all the quotes I normally would. <laughs> I haven't preached in quite a long time. But uh, that sermon always gives me such joy. Because he's telling his mother, he's not just saying, go away. It's all going to be fine. Pie in the sky. He's saying, these words we shared, 
I went to sleep. I woke up. Go home with John. Oh. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And, and again, I suppose that's um, speaking of a communal sort of thing. When you when you've shared. Uh, something like when that's a shared prayer or a shared bedtime prayer, that's what he's tapping into. Not this is the end of my individual journey, but I shall rise again in a sense. But even Jesus is getting this, this sense of the communal in that. Yes. And also saying greater things shall you do. I mean, how much greater, what can we do that is greater except that a Christ spirit is reborn in us and together we do more. Mm. Um, whatever more means <laughs> <laughs> look there's a few other things I, I was hoping we might have a, a chance to explore one from a I guess a contemplative point of view as I, as I mentioned our Eurocentric uh, understanding of contemplation is one largely founded in just silence and, and you know sitting silently for 20 minutes or whatever it might be something that I had never considered until your work is that um, for, for minorities in the world silence has actually been quite an oppressive thing and it mightn't actually be the best portal into the divine, the best spiritual practice when it has been a thing that has been oppressive, um, you know, for, for, for people over the journey. Do you think that is part of the reason why in the, the African-American church, the contemplative practices are so often so energetic and loud because silence has been the thing that has oppressed? Yeah, um, their voices have been suppressed um, they have had to keep secrets, which is another kind of silence, just for survival. Um, and that still isn't over with. Uh, so yes, um, you develop a way of approaching contemplation that fills your soul and feeds your spirit. And so just silence is very isolating. What do you need more when you're being oppressed than the community? You need others close to you. You need others you can feel and talk to and sense. And so always in the African-American church, music is key. You can't have a service without deep and abiding music because music knits spirits together. Mm -hmm. Music makes community. I have, um, I went to a Presbyterian seminary I have attended many, many types of churches, and I've always wondered how people just sit and, and not connect in the spirit. And as you were saying, that wild bird who creates the vortex, it begins when that music plays that touches something that I can't reach any other way mm -hmm. except through music or dance or art. I have the same feeling when I look at the, the artistic work of Mikhail Owuna, um, a Nigerian artist who paints black bodies and illuminated. He said that he, he saw so many black bodies shot down by police in the US lying in the street. And he decided that he would illuminate African bodies, all kinds of uh, people of color in the universe and put stars on them and astral markings. Can, can you begin to see something different? When I saw his paintings, I, it took my breath away. It's not because I didn't see myself as part of the universe or part of the connection. It's because I'd never seen it actually depicted 
I, I couldn't, I could imagine it, but when I saw it, it enlivened me. It fed me. I love that idea of that true contemplation actually reveals the truth. Yes. I think that's, um, you know, corruption and abuse and all forms of oppression actually thrive on silence and secrets. And, yes. you know, we have sometimes created forms in the church that you could you can have a split life still and maintain this, this outer performance of what could look like contemplation. But actually, I think true contemplation, because it's based on connection, um, true contemplation has to actually, you know, you can't, it has to overturn the secret keeping. It has to be authentic and and expose, reveal, I guess is a better word. It has to reveal um, what is there. And and, um, sometimes that happens in silence, obviously. Sometimes things, even about yourself, you know, that if you sit in silence, things that you've smushed down within yourself have a chance to surface and be revealed. But I think I've never thought about the fact that corporately, that contemplation as a communal work also will reveal, reveal communal truths. And so the oppression that comes with secret keeping should not sit comfortably with contemplation. Mm. Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have to expunge, you have to you have to pour out the poison. Mm. If you must continue to live in societies that are oppressive, you cannot do that carrying gunny sex of bile. You Mm. have got to get rid of the poison. And so African-American churches were places where you could run the aisles, scream if you needed to. I could not, even as the leader of an Anglo seminary, attend only Anglo churches on Sunday, because sometimes I felt like screaming. And you can't (laughs) scream in an Anglo church without the police coming. (laughs) Sometimes you have to get up and run all around the pews, and nobody has to know what that means. And so, I mean, this was the circumstance when... um, when Jeremiah Wright was castigated, the African-American prophet and preacher uh, from Chicago, the problem was not what he said or didn't say, it was that Anglos didn't know what we did in church. They thought we did what they did. Yeah. If an African-American church had Methodists on the outside, they thought we did what they did. They didn't do that. Hmm. We might be part of the Methodist movement, it might say Baptist on the outside. It might say Episcopal. But if we needed to run that church or scream, or if we needed to get on our faces uh, at the altar, or if we needed to moan or not speak at all, or just say, we're not having a sermon today. We're just going to play this music. If you need to weep, come to the altar to weep. We did what was necessary. And so all that happened was they got a little peek into what we really do on Sundays, which is exorcise the poison. And people, you know, I'm reminded of how people responded to Bishop Michael Curry's um, sermon at the wedding because it wasn't wasn't the sort of Anglican um, proper, Mm. in inverted commas, uh, sermon. It was uh, Afro-American 
priests, mm -hmm. bishops' version of preaching an incredible sermon, I thought. But I, I was really amazed at how so many people thought that his sermon was inappropriate because it was so exuberant. And yet here he was celebrating this, this couple and what they meant for each other in a way that um, I thought peeled back the label, the, the layers of some of the artifice of, of what the royal family, you know, and the royal family, because of its secret keeping and um, <laughs> game playing, sometimes undermines itself. And Michael Curry walked into that and split it open in the most fantastic way. Um, I'm also, re also reminded that um, you know, Thomas Merton, who was a you know, contemplative, um, was able to recognise that America was about to descend into race riots long before people who were running around doing stuff um, could see it. And he said that it was because he was a contemplative that he could see the truth of what America was becoming and doing to doing to its people. And so it is about truth-telling and peeling, peeling back the labels, and sometimes the silence is needed to peel back the labels or to peel back the layers, um, but other times the silence actually just cements them. So it's, it's how we use silence and how truth and silence relate to each other it becomes a real complex um, thing to explore. Yeah, and it really contemplation helps us to have a living source for truth mm. because truth can be variable and so i mean those who speak out of their political truth their social truth their whatever that truth is i have found that my source of truth has to come up fresh yeah. out of a deep connection to something greater than myself mm. yeah. it cannot be rooted in my opinion it cannot be rooted in my scholarship yeah. it cannot even be rooted in my religious tradition no. it is that voice of god speaking today mm. truth has to come up fresh is a good reminder to us every day, I think, to, to, to look for that and to know that wherever we might have securely placed our truth in the past um, is, is we still need to be looking for that fresh truth, truth mm. springing up. Yes. And I suppose that ties in yeah. with the, the, what we were talking about earlier about the human desire to homogenize it at times or to lock things down and lock things in and, and, um, you know, well, this is the thing that's worked for me. This has been what's led to the truth. So this is now what all I do and the whole practice of what I do, even if it's lost its uh, its meaning. And it makes it reminds me even of um noticing just how much my ego will attach to you know whether it's the twenty minute contemplative sit or whatever. Well, this is this is now my channel in. So I will do this every day, and then maybe I, I will notice that I've been doing it for days and have entirely lost the origin of the meaning of why I do it or what it's about. And I may be on the app getting the gold medal for, you know, climbing up the leaderboard again, because th that that's the, I guess that's the thing about the ego. It's so constantly wanting to, to perform and, and to, to achieve mm -hmm. again. And, and this is what, what I love, Barbara, when you say, and I've heard you say this in a few different places that, uh, 
that people of faith often um, call for the Holy Spirit or pray for the Holy Spirit to come down, but we would have no idea what to do if it actually did. <laughs> because <laughs> it would disrupt everything it, it would it would totally throw our games of private perfection and um you know things being in nice neat order it would totally throw that out the window mm -hmm. right because uh, we have decided how to do church how to approach religion and i'm not sure that it's viable for the next century or even the next week. <laughs> the question is, how do you dismantle all these systems you put in place? And that takes the wild bird. Yeah. That's such a lovely image to work with, isn't it? Well, look, Barbara, mm -hmm. this is, uh, we might move towards wrapping the conversation up now. Um, but but okay. before, before we do, I, I'd just love to, I guess, talk a little bit about um, the times we do find ourselves in, I know that, um, you know, people do feel largely in a state of crisis at the moment. And, uh, you know, as we record here in, in early March in, in Southeast Queensland, we, we find ourselves in the midst of another crisis that's happened with the weather. And I know it won't be too long until, uh, well, this podcast will go out a little bit after that, but we have just had another occurrence of floods and, and, um, and crazy mm. weather. And there is generally just this sense in the air when you, you, you know, you talk to people about whatever's happening in the world of feeling burned out, exhausted, overwhelmed by the crises we are facing collectively. What is it? What is your hope from a contemplative point of view? What is your hope? Um, and I'm always wary of that word, but uh, of the, mm -hmm. the, the future of the path forward for, for us collectively as, a, as the human race. There's always hope, no matter the circumstance, whether we see it or not. And, and that's why I focus so much on community. I may not see it, but my neighbor might. And the good news is that I hope my neighbor will say it's over there. Uh -huh. The other thing is that I can't build encampments in the midst of disaster or pandemic or trouble. I have to journey. And as I journey, wellsprings of sustenance and hope will open up because God says, I will receive daily bread. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I don't know where it's coming from, but my neighbor and I, we're going to just journey together. Mm -hmm. And I may not see the manna descending, but she might. Mm -hmm. And I hope she'll point to the joy, to the resources and together we can share them. Actually, that not only daily bread, but daily breath. We've, um, yes. yesterday yes. Um, was Ash Wednesday as we're recording this. And I, mm -hmm. my parish is actually right in the, on a river bend. So we've got a, we've, we're really in the middle of the flood crisis. And oh. we had Ash Wednesday with this backdrop of the flood crisis as well as global tension, you know. But one thing that became clear is the fragility of life, which is something you focus on on Ash Wednesday anyway. Um, and that, that you, know, you said earlier, you know, we have to get to the place where we know we can only have divine help. And that sense of us sitting here in this precarious situation 
and knowing that that God is the one who gives breath, that we are dust, and that it's actually not about how worthless we are, but it's about saying that from dust we were made and that it's, mm-hmm. we are dust sustained in life because we pray not every day for daily bread but for daily breath because God is attentive and loving to us, sustaining us in breath each day. And I think that coinciding of, the, of, of Ash Wednesday and the floods was just this moment of really leaning into, gosh, we are dependent for each day. Um, the dust yes. that we are, we are dependent. <laughs> and horrible things will happen in the world and they will happen to us and to communities and still we go on. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a beautiful way to end the, the podcast, I suppose, today, Barbara. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.